Well, I really want to thank you for being here and uh, just being patient as we work our way through this series. And again, we're in Nehemiah, and if you don't have your Bibles out yet, there should be one. If you didn't even bring it, there should be one right in front of you. If you could take that out and open it up, just go right to the middle of the Bible, hang a left. You're going to find Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 10. And we're working through 4D praying. How do you go deep with God in prayer? And we saw you look up and you exalt God, and as you exalt God, your soul is going to humble itself before God. You look back and you see the faithfulness of God in your life. And as you look back, you begin to see, even though you've been unfaithful with God at times, I mean, how many of us can understand and can admit right now, I've been so unfaithful in my life. I mean, just look back at your week. Just this past week, are there times in your life that come to mind immediately, I've not been faithful with God? And as you look back and you see that unfaithfulness, you see God's mercy and his fingerprints of grace in your life. And then you look in and you see, you know what, that uh, there's times even immediately that I'm not faithful. It's not just been my life in the past, it's even yesterday, it was even this morning. And yet God is still faithful to me, he is still merciful to me, and it gives you confidence. Now, here's what you got to remember, when you see God's mercy, and it's been consistent in your life, It gives you confidence to know that he's going to be the same merciful God tomorrow. You're going to wake up tomorrow. Now listen, you got to hear this. You're going to wake up tomorrow along with me. And God is going to say, I've got all new mercy for you. You didn't deplete it yesterday. You come and you do what Psalm or Proverbs 28 says. You confess your sin. You forsake it. And when you do that, you will obtain mercy. And when he shows you your sin, you give it to him and you turn around and you walk away from it. And he gives mercy again. And then you look forward and that looking ahead, that looking forward gives you the confidence to know that God's always going to be merciful. It doesn't mean you get a license to sin. It means that he's going to be good to you and he's going to accomplish his purposes. You know, in a museum in Detroit, there is a, there's a huge steam locomotive. And beside this complicated piece of machinery, there's a sign. And on that sign, some of you might have been, I know Pastor Tim's from the uh, Michigan area, you might have been there to this museum. There's a sign and it shows the boiler pressure. And it shows the size and the, the number of wheels. It shows the horsepower that that locomotive generated, the lengths of the locomotive, the weights, all sorts of information. But here's what's, in, here's what's interesting. You've got to hear this. This is now going to set the, the way that we hear this sermon today. On the bottom line of this sign, it says this, that 96% of the power that that locomotive generated, what went to move it, it was so heavy. 96% of the power just went to move the locomotive. 4% was left to move all of the load. Now keep that in mind because I think that might not be sometimes very inaccurate for a church. In fact, Tony Capolo put it this way, the church is like an oil refinery. 
And most of the oil that it produces goes to service its own parts. Are you pulling your load? Are you serving the church? That's my question for you today as you begin to dive into this passage with me. This is what we're going to be confronted with. Are we neglecting the church? Maybe we don't like the church. Maybe the church has hurt us before. Maybe we don't like the people in the church. Are you neglecting the church? You see, the people of God in chapter 10, they're recommitting This is in Nehemiah's day. They're recommitting to make God their priority in every part of their lives. By His grace, we will, here is recommitment number one, we will make the Word of God our practice. And then they recommitted, number two, they recommitted that by God's grace, we will make holiness our pursuit. But before we put a title on this third and final recommitment, let me offer you some background. Now, by the way, you make recommitments in your life. In fact, I have a couple in our our church right now that's talking about recommitting in their marriage. They have a great marriage. They want to recommit. They want to keep their covenant alive. We recommit to seasonal activities. Maybe you're in a bowling league. By the way, I was a bowler. That was my best sport. Yes, it is a sport for some of you cynics. It was my best sport. I bowled a 257 once. All right, that's about as much, that's about the best thing I've ever done in my life. And that's it. I had to throw it out there. But we, re, we make recommitments all the time. Maybe you sign up again for a commitment. Well, you know how it works. You make recommitments. So before we put a title on this last one that we're going to look at, Today, let me, let me give you some background. Notice in your text. Now listen, we're in the Bible. Everybody get your Bibles. We're in Nehemiah chapter 10. We're going to look from 32, verses 32 through 39. I want you to notice a phrase. You're going to see it nine times if you're a student of the Bible. When you see something repeat itself like a pattern, you know this is, this is the main thought. Nine times the phrase, the house of our God, or one of those times, is the house of the Lord. See, in the Old Testament, God's house referred almost always to the tabernacle or temple, once in a while to Israel. But something changes in the New Testament. Now, you've got to hear this. If you, don't, if you don't get this, by the way, you're, you're really not going to get this message. So really put your mind in gear. Let's listen very attentively. The house of the Lord. Something changes in the New Testament. And by the way, it changed the very instant, the very moment that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Here's what Matthew says. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. That means he died. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God ripped it. From the top to the bottom. It didn't rip from the bottom to the top, from the top to the bottom. And humanity, that would be all of us, because of sin, we were separated from the holy, sinless God. That symbol, listen, that symbol of separation was that curtain, was that veil. 
Because of the sacrifice of Jesus who atoned for the sins of all who would believe on him, that curtain was torn away by the Holy Father. And we've got access to God. And as great as this truth is, here it is. You've heard the phrase, God or Elvis left the building. Listen, this is infinitely greater. God left the building. He left the temple. The veil was ripped. God left the temple. Listen, he left the temple made by human hands and moved into a new house. He moved into a new house. Here's his house. Ready? It's the sanctified, made holy heart of every believer. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you put your faith in him, listen, God left the temple to come live in your heart. Now you're the temple. I'm the temple. Do you not know that you are God's temple, Paul wrote, and that God's spirit dwells in you? For God's temple is holy. And listen, you can't get clearer than this. You are that temple. Every believer is a dwelling place for God In the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God lives in every Christian. But there's more to God's new dwelling place. We, you know, you, you kinda, you kinda tend to, and I do it well, you know, once in a while, we tend to refer to the church building as the house of the Lord. But that's not biblically correct. Let's never do that again. Let's never call any building the house of God. Because that's not the house of God. What's the house of God is the church. And the church is not the building. The church is the gathering of all believers. What we're doing right now. It's the gathering of all believers called out of the world. You've been called out of the world and you've been put into God's kingdom. You no longer have rights and citizenship in the world. You now have rights and citizenship in the, in the kingdom of God. And we gather regularly in large numbers and in few numbers. And we worship and we love our God. That's the church. When we gather together, God is dwelling in our midst. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians. In Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, time out real quick. Nine times, nine times in Nehemiah chapter 10. You're going to hear this phrase, the house of God. And it's going to end with something that ought to probably be searingly convicting for some of us. Do not neglect the house of the Lord. Do not neglect the house of God. But what I've got to get us to know, and this is why I'm giving the backdrop, is that God's not living in the temple anymore. He's living in each of us. And when we get together, God is dwelling. He is making a home among us. It's a dwelling place for God by the Spirit when we come together. We together are the church, God's house, His dwelling And it moves us to this third and final recommitment. Here it is. The third one is this. By God's grace, we will make his dwelling our priority. Now, I hope you're listening. I hope you're listening because you're going to be asked if you're ready to make that priority. Are you ready to not neglect the church? 
The church, the living expression of the kingdom of God, when we dwell together, when we get together and we worship and we love God and each other and God climbs into our midst through His Spirit, are you ready to not neglect that? You're ready to serve, you're ready to give of your time and your talents, your skills and your treasure, your monies. Are you ready to not neglect this, not the building, this church? By God's grace, we will make his dwelling our priority. And what we're about to see, that was all introduction, what we're about to see shows how they and how we can keep from neglecting God's house. Here we go, let's dive right into it. Number one, first, let me give you two main points and then some sub-points. You're going to have to listen. Not in college tonight. You're in the house of the Lord because we're gathered together, amen? That was weak. Let's try that again. Amen? Amen. Do some of you not want to be here? I mean, you make me pick up papers. All right, I'm going to go on. First, number one, regular sacrificial giving reminds us continually of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Now listen, all that to say this. When we give regularly, time, talent, and treasure. When we give regularly, it reminds us continually of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. See, the evidence of our faith is our works, right? You get that? The evidence, if you, if you got faith, if you're telling me you've got faith in Jesus Christ, then it's going to be evident in the way that you live. The evidence of faith is our works and they give testimony of God's changing grace in our lives. So it reasons that the consecration, the recommitment and the reform of these Jews would be seen by what they do with their monies. Listen, if they're going to come to God in Nehemiah 10 and say, God, you've changed their lives. It's going to be evident in the way that they live regarding what they have. And look at verse 32, ready? Let's be students of the word of God. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. You might be nine years old in this sanctuary right now. You might be 13, you might be 14, 16, or 18. You might not yet have a job or you're making regular income. Listen, when I was a little boy, every week, often I was given the opportunity to give what my mom and dad were giving to the church. It was given to me. They would give it to me so that I could place it in the plate as it was passed, so that I could participate in the discipline and the joy and the privilege of supporting God's dwelling place, the church, what he was doing all around the world. Even if you're young and even if you do not yet have an income, you learn this joy now. So that when you do have an income, it's an automatic part of your life. See, originally when God brought Israel out of Egypt, remember they were slaves in Egypt. He required every person 20 years old and older to give a half a shekel to the temple. It was a tax. 
It was a ransom price. Listen, if God brought you out of Egypt and you were 20 years old and older, then you had to come and you had to give a half shekel signifying that your God ransomed or bought or redeemed you out of slavery to Egypt. This was your recognition, your thankfulness, your gratitude to your redeeming God. But that ransom price, that half shekel, that ransom price pointed forward to Jesus Christ. That was not only then. It pointed forward to Jesus Christ because Jesus would become our ransom price. For the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10. So Jesus is our ransom price. You paid that half shekel, Jew. You come out of Egypt, God rescued you, you take that half shekel, you're 20 years old and older. This is pointing forward to Jesus who one day will give himself as the ransom price to free us not from Egypt, to free us from the damning power of sin. In Nehemiah's day, Remember, this is now much later than when the Israelites came out of Egypt. In Nehemiah's day, they promised to give one-third of a shekel each year. That was a one-time gift back in Egypt when they came out of Egypt. This is now a yearly gift. It's a yearly tax. One-third shekel every year that you're going to bring. And look what it's for. It's for the service of the house of our God. It was to upkeep the building it was to pay for the services and all of what had to be supplied and we'll go over a few of them in a minute this is what it's for so when you give listen when you give to this church some of that money goes to the upkeep of our buildings some of that money goes to the ministries that we do it's no different this is always the way that god has provided for the church for the house of god and it provided, verse 33, look what it says, it provided for the showbread. You know what the showbread was? I want you to picture two piles of cakes of bread. Six per pile, 12 altogether. Very symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. God is sufficient for all of Israel. God is sufficient for all the world. It was divided into two piles, six loaves in each pile. And listen, it was made every Sabbath day. It was set before the Lord in the tabernacle first and then in the temple when the permanent building was made. You see, the manna, you remember what they ate in their wandering, that manna that came to them every day? Listen, the manna, portrayed the life-giving Christ, not the showbread. The showbread symbolizes the life-sustaining Christ. When you come together the first of the month and we celebrate communion and we're handing out these pieces of bread, listen, that is to celebrate the broken body of Christ who died for us. His life died so that we can live. It sustains our faith. And then that money, that half shekel provided, the third shekel, provided the regular grain offering. That was an offering. They took fine flour and they mixed it with oil and frankincense. And, and then sometimes they made it into cakes without leaven. And it recognized God's goodness, the provision of God. It was aromatic. It was beautiful, fragrant before God. 
And then that one-third shekel, that temple tax, provided regular burnt offerings. Listen, every day, every day the priest would take one unblemished animal in the morning and sacrifice that animal. There was smoke rising continually from the altar. It was never to go out. They would sacrifice an animal in the morning. They would sacrifice an animal in the evening. And then on the Sabbath, they would sacrifice two additional animals animals after the morning service all, all day every every week all every week of the year they did this god said let there be smoke rising continuously from my altar why because let there be a constant reminder that we are sinners and god is holy we are in need of one who would pay a ransom to make us holy buy us out of sin and help us appear before god and peace and fellowship. That smoke rising moved them to their need for a forgiving God. And all of these services in verse 33 pointed to their need for one who would deliver them from sin so that they could dwell with their God in peace. This is what the temple tax was for. It was for the service of the house of our God. But I want to spend a little bit more time in the second point. Second is this. We are to invest our best into God's mission. Now listen, I really want you to hear that because that could be, you know, one of those trite little sayings that you say. Are you investing your best into God's mission? See, a few verses earlier in chapter 10, they recommitted. They let the land go fallow every seventh year. They recognize, why, why did they do that? If you were here two weeks ago, you remember. It was to recognize that the land belongs to God, that they're just the managers of it. They're just the stewards of the land. And that God hands these undeserved gifts to us. He puts them into our hands and he trusts us to use them the way that he directs us. But what do we tend to do? And I don't, I'm not sure about you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. I'm not going to speak for you. But I tend to do this. What we tend to do is close our grips. We tighten our grips on those things that God gives to us to use for his glory. We hold possessively to them. All right, now listen. Now every one of you are going to get this. You're all going to get this. God doesn't mind if you make money. He doesn't mind if you make money. He doesn't mind if you use some of that money to pay your bills. He doesn't mind if you use some of that money to get good things. But he wants us to be good stewards to share what he gives us, to fund the work of ministry in our church, to help widows and those in need, to have open hands rather than hands that have closed around possessions. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Some of you here right now, you're poor. There's never going to not be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. You open your hand. Why? Listen, when God puts something in your hand, he puts a new car in your hand. 
He puts a home into your hand. He puts a promotion at work into your hand. What we want to do in our flesh is to grab it and hold it possessively and to say that it's mine. What God says is keep your hand open because I might come down and say, hey, I'm going to give this now to that person. And you got to trust me. You got to be okay with that. See, the life, or the, the question that you've got to learn to ask along with me is not how much do I need to give God of what is mine? Listen, that's not the right question. It's not how much do I need to give God of what is mine? Here's the right question, and it's infinitely harder. Here it is. It's how much of what is God's should I keep? Do you see the difference? It's not how much of what is mine should I give away. It's how much of what is God's should I keep. That question will set you free when you begin to live it. How do you learn to live, though, with open hands? How do you learn to invest God's resources into his mission? I think we're going to learn it from this passage. Let me give you... Five ways that I think you can begin to live with open hands, investing your best into the mission with God. This is, I think, very practical. Number one, give responsibly. Give responsibly. We, the priests, look at verse 34. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, there's nobody left out. In today's vernacular, it's we, the pastors, the elders, the deacons, and the congregation. That's the entire church. That's everybody here. The point is clear. Spiritual leaders are not exempt from giving and bringing to God's house. To those who are leaders... Listen, if you're a leader in this church, or a leader in another church, and you're just visiting today... listen. All leaders on any level of the church must give. None of us are exempt from giving faithfully to the church where you worship. By personally investing your time, giving of your talents, putting and investing your treasure into the ministries. Look at this, even this staff. Listen, we get paid by you. All of my salary comes from what you give. And even the staff of this church must give sacrificially. Look at verse 38. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. Have you ever wondered what's the tithe of the tithes? Numbers chapter 18 explains it. Say to the Levites, these are leaders These are full-time ministers. When you take from the people of Israel the tithe that I have given you from them for your salary, for your paycheck, for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to the Lord. It's a tithe of the tithe. I tithe, I give, because I'm commanded to give just like you're commanded to give. All of God's people are to give and to invest into the mission of God through the church. You give responsibly. Secondly, you give personally. You make God's house, His church, our priority. It's it's a lot more than just it's a lot more than just giving money. 
It's about giving yourself. It's about giving personally to the work of the kingdom of God through the church. You see, God just doesn't want checks written and given from a dispassionate observer. The clue is this. I want you to look at your text and just skim through it, and you're going to see the word bring seven times repeated. Bring. Bring into the house. Bring to the priests. This is about personal ownership. You give personally. You don't just send checks to this church. You don't just send checks to everybody else. You give that money. You give your time. You give of your talent. Relationally, personally, you invest what might cost you more by doing it personally than it ever would by just throwing a check at somebody. You could give to a church and stay aloof and distant. But God's way is that there would be ownership. He wants personal investment into his work. He wants time, talent, and treasure. The very best of all we have personally given. So you give responsibly. You give personally. Look at the next one. You give to God as your priority. Look at verse 35. All the people were to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. The first fruits, if you're ever wondering, what are, what are the first fruits? It refers to the very first products or produce of the seasonal harvest. And they were considered to be holy. Listen, the first fruits, the Bible says, belongs to God. You've got a, you get a paycheck. This is how it works. You get a paycheck. You don't go through all of your bills and go through all of your wish list and allocate that money and then what's left over decide what to give to God. That's not first fruit giving. First fruit giving is you deliberately, you intentionally, you premeditatively worship. You give God first what belongs to Him. Then you live with the rest. First fruits means that God owns, holy God owns that fruit. And you bring that first fruit to God and you acknowledge God's ownership. And they acknowledged God's ownership of the land and of all the crops that would follow. Listen, it's not that God just owns your first fruits. God owns everything. But when you give him of your first fruits, you're recognized he's a master of it all. It means that our time and our talent and our treasure is geared around the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God has a physical expression. Listen, you ever know what the kingdom of God looks like here on earth? Listen, look around. Everybody look around. Here's what the, look around. Here's what the kingdom of God looks like. Some of you are thinking, man, it's not looking too good. And most of you are looking at me when you're thinking it. We're clinkers. You know what clinkers are? There's a church in Gates, New York. It's a Presbyterian church who built the entire outer part of the church from clinkers. Clinkers are bricks that didn't pass inspection at the kiln and they were thrown out. They built the whole church out of clinkers because they realized that we are the foolish of the world. We don't look too great to the world. But we're chosen by God. We're the church. He lives within us. He's exercising his will through us. He's bringing redemption to the planet through us, the church. We're clinkers, yet we're chosen by God. And we're built into this beautiful, beautiful church. 
The church, God's dwelling place, the assembling of his people becomes the priority when you give your first fruits to him. He gets your best in your effort. He gets your best in your time. He gets the best in your monies and your possessions. It doesn't mean that we don't work in our careers with excellence. It doesn't mean you don't pay your bills responsibly. You establish God as first priority, believing that he will, in his grace, help you orient your time, your energy, and your resources for other responsibilities you have. If God is not your priority, then it makes sense that your life is going to be out of balance. It's going to be misaligned. The first and the very best belong to God and to his dwelling place, the church. We're not to give to God what is left over from our busy weeks. You're to give him your best. Fourth, you handle what was given with integrity. Remember what we're learning? How do, you, how do you live with a closed hand and invest your best into God's mission? Number four, you handle what was given with integrity. You handle what was given with integrity. See, God established guidelines for giving, guidelines for bringing it personally. Listen, he even established guidelines for how you receive it. Verse 38, and the priest and the son of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. Listen, don't, Levites, you're not, you just don't receive these tithes and then go take it to the storehouse in the temple of God on your own. There's got to be accountability. You've got to have the priests with you. You've got to have more people with you so that there won't be the temptation to take a little of that for yourself. It all belongs to God and it must all get to God's use. You see, the Levites would travel around the whole land. They would get to the districts and the towns and they would collect the tithes. If you lived a hundred miles, Jesus grew up in Galilee. Galilee was 75 to 80 something miles above Jerusalem. You're not going to always bring your offerings down to the temple. You will give your offerings at Jesus' day to the synagogue. The priests would collect it and they would get it to the temple. These Levites went and traveled around all the land of Israel and they collected these monies and they brought it back to the temple. But they weren't allowed to bring it back on their own. They had to have a priest with them. You know we do that in our church? Do you know that there's never a time when the monies that you give are in the hands of one single person? Never. They are taken to our safe with two people or more. They're taken from the safe to the church where it's counted by two people or more. There's never a time. There's, we, we recognize this principle That you handle what was given to God with integrity. And fifth, you give sacrificially and regularly. Most of us are familiar with the word tithe. It's mentioned in verse 37, if you want to look. The word literally means a tenth part. If you want to know what the word tithe means, it means a tenth part. Ten percent of what they earned or produced from their fields, their orchards, their olive trees... But when you total up, there were three tithes. One of them was to be given every three years. If you add up all three tithes, listen, some of you are going to be shocked. It wasn't 10%. 
that you gave to God, it was 23%. And then you add on top of 23% free will offerings. Those offerings that God moved in your heart and you wanted to give above and beyond what God required, the 23%. You give beyond that, those are free will offerings. You think what you're giving is hurting? What do you think about the Jews who gave it cheerfully, happily? The people of Israel, 2 Chronicles, brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. Everything was to be given to the Lord. You know what the average American Christian today gives? 2.5% of their monies. That's not even just to the church. That's to the church to missions or missionaries, charities, all combined, 2.5%. They gave 23 and beyond that free will offerings. We give on average 2.5. 40% of Christians give nothing. 40% of Christians give nothing. As if God lowered his expectations because we're in the new covenant of grace. See, tithing's an Old Testament command, a lot of people say. Now what we do is, it's called grace giving, they insist. People will argue this. I would say tithing is not explicitly given in the New Testament to give. Yet it's the baseline, it's the training wheels of the bicycle. Certainly God in grace is not saying give below what I've always asked my people to give. In fact, anything that goes from the Old Testament to the New Testament increases. It's not that 10% or 23% belong to the Lord. Listen, the teaching of Jesus is that 100% belong to the Lord. And he places it in your hand. And you keep that hand open. And sometimes he's going to say, hey, I'm going to take this that I've given you because it's mine. And I've entrusted it to you for good possession and stewardship. I'm going to give that over here because this person's in need. I like what Randy Alcorn said. It isn't. It isn't that. I lost my place. He says this. It isn't that the floor of the tithe is made invalid under the new covenant. It's simply that the ceiling of Christian giving goes so much farther above it. The command to tithe is not given in the New Testament, but the principle that all we have belongs to God and we should hold loosely to it. We should give generously and cheerfully to his church, investing in his mission and those who are in need. But some are going to say, but I can't afford to tithe. I can't afford to give. Listen, I want to give you a very gracious warning from the word of God. And you can go to the book of Haggai and see this. Here's the problem for those who say, but I can't afford to give to God. Here's what Haggai says. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. 
Why? Why are you putting money into bags and they just, it disappears? Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, my dwelling place that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Listen, if you're going to spend what God has given you in a tight fist on yourself, he's going to take it away and you're going to lose what he's given to you and you're going to wonder, where did it go? I can't give, I don't have the money. Some can't afford to give, ironically, because they will not give. Their priorities are simply wrong. Some say, I haven't been giving at all, so won't God understand if I gradually increase? I had somebody a few years ago tell me, you know what, we used to, we used to not give to this church, or to any church, and now we're giving 3%, and they're excited, and I'm, I'm like, why are you excited? Would you be excited if I told you that Last year, I robbed 10 convenience stores, but God's worked in my heart. And this year, I've only robbed three or seven. Listen, Bible says, if you do not, if you close your fist and you do not give generously and cheerfully, the baseline, the baseline of 10%, it's been consistent all through the Bible, the baseline. But if you don't give cheerfully, then you're robbing God. Nehemiah's people recommitted to make God's house their priority. They realized that all they had was God's. Is he showing you that? Are you asking God, how much of what you have given me can I spend? Or are you asking the better question, God, how much of what you've given me should I keep? I ought to be giving this people who need. I ought to be investing this into your mission. I ought to be funneling this into what is your greatest priority. I'm telling you, God's greatest priority is his church. Not the buildings, the people. Those who have been called out of the world, put into the kingdom of God, and the physical expression of the kingdom of God is his church. That's where God's attention is. And they looked at verse 39. They recommitted. They said, we will not neglect the house of our God. And Paul said it similarly, Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. By God's mercy, by God's grace, we will give ourselves fully to God as a living sacrifice. You know what we're praying in this church? We're seeing it happen. We're praying the prayer of Ezekiel 36 where God said, I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. We're praying, God, bring people to Christ-centered churches in the Lehigh Valley. Fill this city, the city of East and the east end of the Lehigh Valley. Fill it with people who are ready to serve and lay themselves on the altar. Did you know that when Nehemiah wrote this, the temple, the house of God, had been up and running for 80 years? Did you know that? 
For 80 years, the temple had been rebuilt. Yet God's house was surrounded by a ruined city and a discouraged people. And next week, we're going to see how many of this congregation rise up and live heroically for God. And it's happening here as well. Last week, we had two college girls who said, we're going to be here all summer. What can we do? We want to get on the wall. We don't want to waste our summer. We want to serve. Just show us where to go. Just show us what to do. We had four, three students from Lafayette these last four years. Andrew, Sam, and Mario, who recognize that getting involved in the local church, it's the norm. Even when you're away at college, you get involved in your local church. You give your time, your talent, and your treasure. We've got an elderly gentleman in our church who's never even been here. He's bedridden in a nursing home. He just completed a biblical studies degree online from Liberty University. He heard about us through our outreach ministries at the nursing home. He gives us a call and he says, listen, I can't get out of bed, but I want to serve. I want to get on the wall. What can I do? I don't care what it is. I don't care how menial the task is. I am perfectly willing to just fold envelopes. Just give me something to do. I've got a man in our church who faithfully asks me, Pastor Tim, get me on the wall. Get me on the wall. Where can I serve? Listen, are you giving to this church regularly, sacrificially, your time, your talent, your treasure? Are you investing your very best into the mission of God, which is his church? Or are you giving him what's left over of your week and what's left over of your treasure? Are you one of many Christians who need, by the grace of God, to recommit to make God's house your priority? I'm going to ask you to respond to this one. It's by God's grace. This is no whip of legalism. You're not only going to please God if you stand up and recommit. You're going to please God because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. But if you respond to the death of Christ right and your faith is evidenced in action, then he will set you free from the pull of this world and he will set you into the kingdom of God, into the church, and you will invest. If you have recognized that you've not given your best to the church, and you've not been obedient with your time, talent, or treasure, I'm going to ask you to stand up. And we're going to make a recommitment together, only by God's grace. Don't stand if you don't need to. Anybody else? Now listen, no recommitment to the Lord should ever be done in private secret. So look around, see how many people are standing. I want you to look around. You're not alone. Let's pray for each other, amen? Let's invest our best into God's mission. Let me pray for you. Lord, I pray for those who are standing.